And I said, tell me in this long journey that you've been on, has there been any place that you've gotten to that you can see anything redemptive about what God is doing? We'd been talking for an hour and a half, and we were talking about her journey with infertility. I decided coming into this series that one of the great opportunities we had here was to talk about a topic that's a real issue for a lot of people. And uh, I, I asked her, have you even gotten to the place, and I winced when I even said it. I said, have you gotten to the place where you can make any sense of it? Have you gotten to where you could even be a little grateful? That's exactly how I felt. She paused for a second, and she said, so I'll tell you a story. She said, I went to a local free clinic a couple of weeks ago, and when I walked in, I looked around me, and she said, there was a profound difference in what I saw. She said, I saw the same people that I had seen years ago when I first walked into a clinic like that. And she said, at that point in time, I was wondering, why don't I get a child? And I walk in and I see this single mom, what it looks like to me, with four kids who's probably living off of welfare. And I thought, why in the world does she get a child? Why does she get four? And I saw another couple. I noticed they didn't have any rings on. Obviously, she's very pregnant. And I thought, now wait, if they're not even committed to each other or whatever, of course, she's just making these determinations in her own mind. If they're not, why did they get a child? And it went on. And she said, this last time when I went in, I had such a different set of eyes. She said, when I saw the single mom with a couple of kids, I was happy for her. I thought, how great is that, that she has children? She said, I saw another couple across the way. She was really pregnant. They had a little child already. And I thought, hmm, that I know can be tough. It's awesome that they get to have children. She said, I saw a single mom come in after a while that had a whole train of kids behind her. And she said, my response to her was, man, that's got to be really complicated. And she said, God had changed me from a female Pharisee <laughs> to someone with, who saw with eyes of redemption. This is a real issue. It's a real issue in our culture. There are, by the way, age 35 is almost a magic number, if you don't realize this. I've learned a lot about fertility in this process. For a woman, age 35 is a significant break point. After that, you're actually considered aged in every part of you, your eggs, your womb, everything. One in eight couples, 12% of married women, have trouble getting pregnant or sustaining a pregnancy to live birth in our country. Whose fault is it? They have found through extensive studies that one-third of those are because of the female, one-third are because of the male, and a third are because of some kind of a combination or something that they never can solve. So it's everybody's fault and nobody's fault. Is it uh, normal 
Or let's ask it this way, what is a normal family with normal reproductive scenarios experience? The truth is, in if everybody's completely healthy, there's only a 22.5% chance on any given month that a couple can get pregnant, even if they're trying very hard. I won't explain how to try, by the way, just so you know that. But they're trying. And do people go and get help? The truth is, 44% of women with infertility issues seek assistance. Only 44. Of those, only 11.9% actually receive some kind of a service that is a medical process. So what that means is, there are a whole lot of people walking around in our culture, some in this room, who are experiencing the pain, the uncertainty, the trouble of infertility. One of the common threads across these knots up here on the rope is we started with Moses and we, or with Abraham, and then we went through to Moses and we went to Samson last week, and we come to Samuel this week, is the issue of infertility. Take your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to try to get to this. I'd like to use alliteration because you might remember a couple of pieces. I don't expect anybody to be able to say this out loud after we're all done. But I think we can learn that passionate patience appropriates pain-filled purpose. I get a lot of P's in there. Hannah's story lets us know about passion. It lets us see some things about patience. It lets us see things about actually appropriating something from God. It also allows us to see that actually the entire process is pain-filled and God has great purpose. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read for several verses here. Uh, just a backstory. This is at the very end of the Judges period. We're just coming into, actually Samuel ends up being the single most multifaceted leader in the history of God's people. He is a judge he's a priest he's a prophet he's got the authority over two kings he is an amazing individual and this is the setup to samuel's story then hannah prayed excuse me i'm in chapter two chapter one verse one gotta come back here this says this gives us a story there was a certain man from ramathaim a zephite from the hill country of ephraim whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, or Jeroham, excuse me, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now you say, what in the world is all that about? In their culture, it's very important to lay out the actual understanding of what the pedigree of, of a certain person. This is a very important man, Elkanah. And he had two wives. Now do you hear the trouble brewing already? <laughs> You guys remember the Far Side uh, cartoons, Trouble Brewing? There was a series of those. My favorite one has a large open space with a great big, like a hedge in the middle. And on one side is a teacup poodle convention. And all the little fluffy dogs are running around out there. And on the other side is a falconry convention. <laughs> and the only caption on the bottom is Trouble Brewing. <laughs> I mean, it's just awesome. So this should say Trouble Brewing right after here. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, because she's mentioned first, she probably was his first wife, and the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Trouble brewing, part two. 
year after year. Listen to this. The man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty, the one true living God at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the son of Eli's, were priests of the Lord. We're not going to get into that story. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now let me ask you, women, if you've gone for years with your other wife, we've watched television shows about this, your other wife making your life miserable because you can't have children, would your husband giving you more meat feel better? Would you feel better about that? Would you go, okay, yeah, thanks. That's awesome. I feel great. I can tell you really love me because you gave me more meat. Okay. He's doing what he can, but the truth is pretty inept, right? But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, and the Lord had closed her womb. What an interesting transition right there. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. You hear it. You feel it. She's not just struggling with her own insecurities, her own pains. She's actually being picked on all the time in her own home. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Remember the would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Get over it, honey. Don't I mean more than to, you, to you than ten sons? Does this guy have any clue? Right? He is trying. Give him credit for that. And men, can we relate? We try. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Just this interesting little p- pocket She stood up from the family. She started to initiate something. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. This is not the great big temple. This is probably the tabernacle that had been set up in a little bit more of a permanent fixture. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. I mean, do you hear the passion? This is all about passion. And she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. She's desperate. Then, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you, the one true living God, for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be on his head. The exact same promise made by Samson's mom last week. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was praying in her heart. This must have been unusual. It probably was more often that it was a public prayer. And her lips were moving, but her voice was not being heard, and Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. A typical kind of response sometimes from people who are, I mean, talk about insensitivity. Doesn't ask a question, doesn't do any research, nothing happens. All he does is say, what's your problem, lady? Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and my grief. 
You hear the passion? The passion is real, and she decides to do something about it. In this entire time, she took some initiative and did something. I'm going to tell you in all of these interviews with the women that I found, I found some common denominators. Grief is the single greatest one. You hear the grief all the way through this. And that's the last word that she says there. You say, why grief? Well, sometimes there's actually a death that they experience. Sometimes there's not. But the grief is, of course, the loss of what could have been. What feels like should have been. And grief is a fascinating animal. It's fascinating. That sense of, I am in this and I'm feeling it. As we go along here, I'm going to read some passages from uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called A Grief Observed. Very brief. It's just the capturings of his experience as he lost his wife to cancer. He starts the book with this sentence. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. Not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. Interesting that that's what actually Eli thought was going on here. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me, and I find it hard to take in what everyone is saying. Or perhaps it's just that it's all so uninteresting. Yet, when I want the others to be around, I absolutely need them there. I dread the moments when the house is empty. I only wish that they would talk to each other instead of talking to me. If you've been in grief, you know exactly. Your experience might be different, but there's that, this aspect of, man, I'm just caught in here. This is not what it, I thought it would feel like. We move on. Turn to, or look in there to verse 17 as we learn some about not just her passion, but patience. You started to hear a little bit of a turn in the story as she did something. She took some activity. She moved forward. So Eli says to her, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Thank you, Eli, for being pastoral. Thanks, good job. Because he, he finally hears it, he evaluates, and he says, oh, I was wrong. But he doesn't enter in, he doesn't become part of the story, he just says, bless you. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way, and hear how this takes another step. And she ate something. Remember, she wouldn't eat. And her face was no longer downcast. Does this mean she's over the grief? You know better than that. It's not even close to that. Should never be an expectation that that's the case. But she's taking some steps. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. And then she went back to the home at Ramah. And Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife. There's, there's a sense in here of some time that passes. She actually makes the step of saying, you know, part of what I've been doing here has been actually closing myself off even from the opportunity. She decides, I'm not going to let sex be a, 
bullying mechanism and a, I don't know what all goes on in her mind here. But there's an imp implication that she opens herself up to him. And the Lord remembered her. And I'm going to stop there on purpose. Because as this is moving, and she is moving, and experiencing her infertility, there's motion, but there is still a sense right here of a great deal of time. And the next sentence actually says, in the course of time. Who knows how long this went? Who knows how long her patience had to last? Who knows how she had to keep moving through with grace and courage? The second thing that was a common denominator in this is that it's so complicated relationally for a person who's going through infertility or a family. It's so complicated. It's awkward at all kinds of phases. It's uncertain. Uh, people around you don't know what to say. They don't know how to respond. They don't know if to be happy. They don't know what to, they literally just kind of walk around. Sometimes they just flat avoid you. It's complicated. Lewis said this, you can't see anything properly while your eyes are blurred with tears. You can't, in most things, get what you want if you want it too desperately. And so, perhaps with God. On the other hand, it says, knock and it shall be opened. But does the knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? And there's also, to him that has shall be given. After all, you must have a capacity to receive, or even omnipotence can't give. Perhaps your own passion temporarily destroys the capacity. It's an interesting process, hard process. Look at the next couple of verses. In the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, verse 20. Now, that sounds like a very simple sentence. There's a lot in that. This moves forward, and now she's capable of bringing life. She named him Samuel because, she said, I asked the Lord for him. There's a word play in there. And when the man Elkanah went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah didn't go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And Elkanah, as is pretty common for him, says, well, whatever you think, do what's best, honey. <laughs> Elkanah says, stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. And so the woman stayed at home, nursed his son until she had weaned him. Now let me ask you, just do the math on this. Is the pain now gone? Even in, in the solution of having the child. She's about ready to take her son that she has asked for and longed for for years and take him and give him to the temple for sale. Have you ever wondered if the pain that is attached with the curse in the garden, it's probably not really a curse, it's just a consequence. But when God said, you women will have pain in birth, do you think that was the first time that would have hurt to pass a child through your body? That doesn't even make any sense. What if the pain is this 
kind of pain. I'm bringing a child into the world, and I have so little control over what's going to happen. I have so much uncertainty as to what this life is going to look like. Look how tough this world is. People abuse each other and hurt each other. This is hard to navigate. What if that's the pain? What happens is she appropriates the solution. I use that word on purpose. Yes, it has a lot of P's in it, but I use that word on purpose because she didn't, this is not an equation that works out mathematically. Ask yourself, why did this happen? What did she do differently? Was there some formula that she filled out? Did she stand on her head the right way and count to 12 in Hebrew? Did she, you know, was the blessing from the prophet or the priest the magic potion? None of those things, we don't have any idea why this solved that. No idea. And that's part of the experience. But here's what we know for sure. Her heart and her attitude, even though the pain is still moving, her heart and her attitude is starting to believe in the redemptive process of God. She's engaging with it. She doesn't feel better. She's engaging with redemption. She's choosing to appropriate what God has offered her, which is hope. Eventually, we've got to come to terms with. This is a common denominator in all the women that I interviewed. We've got to come to terms with the scenario. Somehow, some way, you must. Otherwise, you go crazy. You come to terms with it. You don't get over it. You get through at best. Consider this. If God's goodness is inconsistent with hurting us, then either God is not good or there is no God, C.S. Lewis. For in the only life that we know, he hurts us beyond our worst fears and beyond all that we can imagine. The Lord closed her womb. Remember that. Sooner or later, we must face the question in plain language. What reason have we except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is, by any standard that we can conceive, good? Doesn't all the evidence actually suggest the opposite? What in the world do we have to set against that belief? And he says, all we have is Christ. Now you say, why? Is this just some kind of a feel-better thing? Consider the action of Christ. Did Christ say, I'm going to come and provide all the solution and feel none of the pain? You know better than that. The opposite is true. He felt pain profoundly through the entire journey. He almost never didn't feel pain. This is pain-filled. After, after he was weaned, she took her and took him back and said, Lord, I'll give him back 
takes him with a three-year-old bull, verse 4, and an offering to the Lord. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, verse 26. She said to him, as surely as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. He probably didn't remember. That's okay. But I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He'll be given over to the Lord. And they worshiped God. What, a, what an example. But the pain stays. But here's the next thing. And if, this, if we just end there, we have very little hope in the sense of the gospel. We just do. But the really great news of this story is it goes to the next step, which is there's purpose. Now, you may not want to hear about the purpose in the process. I get that. But at some point in time, if we don't come to that step, then Lewis's talks about God being not good or not there have got to be true. If God, I, I literally really believe this, if God is just punishing us and giving us pain just because he has the capacity to do that, I don't even give a rip about that God. I don't believe that about him. I believe what he says, that he has our best interest in mind. Lewis said it this way, suppose when you're up against, what you're up against is a surgeon whose intentions are really very good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably that he'll go on cutting. If he yield to your entreaties, your cries, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the paint up until that point has been useless. But is it credible that such extremities of torture would be necessary? Is God just torturing? Well, take your choice. The tortures occur. We all know that. If, they're ne if they are necessary, then there is no God, if they're unnecessary, there's no God or a bad one, but if there's a good God, then the tortures are necessary for no even moderately good God could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. There's purpose. And Hannah's song in the next chapter sings the praises of the God. And in fact, that is repeated at the end of 2 Samuel, a whole bunch of the theology that dawned on her. And whether she purposed, you know, personally saying this at the temple that day, or it was written down later and attributed to her, what we know for sure is her heart and her posture now is seeing God redemptively with purpose in the middle of the pain the entire time, without the pain stopping. It's not a solution, a resolution away from pain. It's a resolution finally towards purpose. And she says, I have to believe this is true. Read the poem someday. It's spectacular. It becomes foundational. Let me connect it. David, at the end of his life, sings the praises and draws all kinds of things from Hannah. Psalm 113 borrows whole verses, word for word, out of that song. And Mary, we keep coming across 
Mary sang the song of Hannah. Think of the pain that Mary experienced the whole way through. We have people around us who are experiencing this issue. You can now insert your issue, your loss, your situation, the place where God is doing surgery on you. It may not be infertility as the mechanism, maybe something else. But this process is true. Passion matters. Get up and do something with patience. God will give you, who knows, what or when. The pain keeps going, but there's purpose. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for these truths. Thanks for this story. It's so real, so raw. Thank you that you didn't just give us facts and figures about Hannah. Thank you that we can feel that desperate need for you. And this is a calling card, as Lewis said elsewhere, that you whisper to us in joys, but you scream to us in pain. And uh, you're there for us. You move along with us. You move us. You're doing surgery that is a long process. Um, give us the faith, the hope, the love, the confidence to trust you. And uh, I prayed all that in Jesus' name.